Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to the series focusing on mental health. In this series, we will explore mental health through the lenses of schools, public safety, and the business community. Be sure to check the notes to get links to resources mentioned in the podcast. Well, thanks everyone for joining us today. Uh, this is Maya and I'm here today on behalf of the Midwestern Public Health Training Center. And this is a podcast series on mental health. Joining me today are three guests and we're talking a little bit today, today about ACEs in schools. So I'd like to introduce our guests, but I'll ask them to say a bit more about themselves. Welcome and thanks for joining with us, Dr. Balou Kemba and Dr. Barnes. Would you guys say a little please about yourselves? Sure. Oh, I am um, Rhonda Ballou. I am a professor at SLU University, the Chair of Health Management and Policy. I have been doing community partner and uh, health services work in a variety of uh, community settings and um, schools in um, the US and globally for the past um, 20 years or so. And I'm, I'm glad to be able to speak about this topic um, so that we can um, continue to address adverse childhood experiences and trauma, which at some point we, we need to kind of explain the difference and how they're related um, so that we can move the field forward and, and, uh, and uh, help the next generation of, of youth be successful. Uh, my name is, I'm Kemba Noah London. I am an athletic trainer by trade and I'm a doctoral candidate at St. Louis University. Um, Dr. Blue is my just ever so important and faceted mentor. Um, and I work uh, in a school-based health center um, and my work as athletic trainer kind of led me to public health and health management policy. And through that, um, through that, I kind of got introduced to ACEs, both in the work that I do at the school-based health center, but also in the research that I do with Dr. Bulu. And I'm Dr. Alicia Barnes. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at St. Louis University. Um, and I, as part of my role, I see uh, I work in the community providing child and adolescent psychiatry to children that are frequently faced in, with adverse childhood events or toxic stress being predominantly in urban St. Louis community centers. So I'm working in federally qualified health organizations. So this is a special area of interest to take a step back and say, what are the public health um, interactions or what are the interactions in schools that are in, um, intersecting with the actual diagnoses that I see on a day-to-day -day basis in the clinical setting. Great, thank you so much for joining with us, all of you. And Dr. Barnes, I appreciated your comment there at the end around helping us to think about uh, the role of public health in addressing mental health. Um, and I think that's really the, um, the land that we're living in here today and thinking about this topic. Uh, children's mental health, of course, touches a variety of systems um, as, uh, as it relates, of course, to the national initiatives around children's mental health system and the system of care, recognizing that there are indeed a variety of partners who can contribute to 
wellness. Um, and so our conversation and our likely listeners are public health professionals who um, often of late are asking, what is our role and how do we as public health strategists contribute positively to this conversation in our community? So thank you for joining us today. I would like to just uh, kick it off by asking you three to talk a little bit more about what ACEs are, uh, how they affect children, and provide a little bit of a background around what that means for our listeners. I'll start a little bit, then I'll actually let uh, Dr. Barnes um, expand based on her clinical knowledge. But I wanted to start by saying that we're going to talk about ACEs or adverse childhood experiences, but there are, are other terms that are broader and other terminology, including like um, Dr. Barnes said, toxic stress or even just trauma. And um, I would say that ACEs are a specific measurement of, of that, uh, of um, uh, exposure to trauma, but certainly not all inclusive of everything that could really traumatize uh, a child and have effects um, into their adulthood, um, including uh, further mental health effects, physical health effects, in, in, in effects on their social mobility, and a multitude of, of factors can, can occur um, immediately after and long term from experiencing trauma or adverse events in childhood. So we might hear a lot of terminology thrown around, including trauma, toxic stress, and adverse childhood experiences. And um, there might, I will speak a little bit about some pretty common um, measures or categories of, of adverse childhood experiences, but I, I do wanna make note that, that uh, trauma can, something that traumatizes one child may not traumatize another child. And um, it's, it's really a-, a Individual experience. Individual experience. And just because you're teaching a child in a school-based setting um, that doesn't have a high uh, ACE score, which you can measure, and I can give you some information on that, that, that doesn't mean that that child was not uh, traumatized. So this is a growing field and, and something that we really need to, to consider um, from a public health perspective, as Dr. Barnes said, from a, um, a, a, a social health and well-being perspective, from an economic perspective, from an educational perspective, because adverse childhood experiences and, and early childhood trauma um, affect uh, an individual's well-being um, from a multi-dimensional perspective uh, across the life course. Dealing with ACEs in a school-based setting um, is also important in that um, teachers and peers and 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 staff and coaches realize that, um, you know, this is not a poorly behaved child. This is a traumatized child. This is a hungry child, right? I mean, food insecurity is typically not uh, one of the ACEs, but it's certainly traumatizing to, well, poverty is an ACE, so food security is, is, food security is associated with, um, with poverty, but to realize and and how to create disciplinary, or not as disciplinary, how to redirect children and how to educate children when, when, as opposed to treating them as being poorly behaved, but understanding that they've been traumatized um, and how to, to create trauma-informed school systems. I mean, at this point we have trauma-informed healthcare, um, but how do you really 
create a trauma-informed school system and what are the resources in the training that's necessary to do that. And then when you think about going to schools and if you have like school-based health centers that function in those schools as well, mm -hmm. then it becomes really important for that trauma-informed care for the providers as well. But then again, like Dr. Blue mentioned, for the teachers as well, because you don't want a teacher or a provider to now re-traumatize that child when they're coming to school for this avenue to learn or they're seeking health care from a school-based health center, the last thing that you want them is to now feel um, like ashamed or victimized or get again re-traumatized while they're seeking health care, right? And then when you get to, with my avenue of sports and allied health professionals, this is not something that's really commonly talked about in the allied health professional world. And then when I see coaches that don't really understand or really kind of um, separate the fact that this child might be experiencing all these things at home and this is, might be why they're responding the way that they are or why they're not coming to practice, there's a disconnect between what might be happening at that child and influencing the behavior from the coaches and from also teacher standpoint as well too. And I will ask, given that I know you have a, a, a new and, and rapidly developing area of expertise, if you could say a little bit, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm preempting a question here, um, but if you could say a little bit about what a school-based health center is and what schools typically have a school-based health center and why, because I think it, it relates to trauma and, and, and poverty in many ways. Yeah, so the school-based health center is kind of their, the whole, the whole premise behind school-based health centers is to circumvent the typical barriers that of access to care in underserved um, and safety net populations, right? So the most school-based health centers are located on the school compound, right? So that immediately removes the, back, the barrier of transportation, right? Because you want, the theory is if we put the school-based health center, we put healthcare right where these kids spend 90% of their day, then that now re reduces the likelihood that they're gonna be home sick because they can't go to the doctor, right? Because they can come to school and go to the doctor at the same time. Yeah, and then with school-based health centers as well, they are also moving towards a trauma-informed approach as well, right? So with school-based health centers, most the most common model involves having a nurse practitioner, so some kind of primary care, as well as a mental health or behavioral health specialist as well too. So in the model in the school-based health center that I worked at, the school-based health center worked very much in tandem with the social worker of the school and the disciplinary um, board or action of the school in order to one, use, use behavioral health as an alternative to suspensions, right? So instead of just immediately suspending a kid for say they drop the F-bomb at a teacher or something. We take, they take them to behavior health and be able to kind of figure out what is the underlying reason as to why this behavior happened and not so much just treat the symptom initially, but recognize, okay, given the population that we're in, there might be some underlying things happening as to why this kid has had an outburst, an outburst at, the, at the teacher or some kind of authority figure, right? And what, what as in speaking with the social worker at the school, what we saw happening is that the suspensions dropped, we had a reduce in terms of in-school suspensions and all those kind of things, when we just changed the way that we dealt with discipline, right? Instead of just, you know, having the zero tolerance policy for everything, it was more that understanding, like we discipline with dignity or we discipline with a certain understanding going in behind. Um, it's a little bit harder for me when I have my coaches who always have rub some dirt on it, right? Or <laughs> that's always the answer to everything, regardless if it's an actual like, physical injury versus a mental injury, right? Because right? that's something that they're not used to really 
dealing with or they themselves would have come up in similar neighborhoods. So they have the mindset of, well, it's just something you have a choice to either just overcome it or let it, you know, or let it just keep you where you are without recognizing, well, you know, there are other things that are going into why this child can't just make the choice to get over it. Right. So I think when we expand or like I've been trying to expand in terms of the concept of like trauma informed coaching. Right. So I've spoken with coaches who um, just kind of feel bewildered in terms of how do they now coach a team where one of their players just got shot. Right. Like, how do you now come to practice and just perceive a practice like nothing happened when you know that these kids are now, you know, surrounded by gun violence and they're being impacted by gun violence in a very real and personal way. How do you go on with practice? How do you now navigate that field? And a lot of coaches now, which is interesting and great in the world of sports are recognizing like we can't do it the way that we were doing it before, because this is a whole different ball game. And I think because those coaches also work in the schools, that is now trickling into the school schools as well, right? Because they're teachers and they see them every day. So you find coaches now become advocates for trauma-informed care within the schools and within having like a care team set up for their athletes and those kind of things. So they become very invested with the holistic program and discipline of their of their students and their athletes, not just this one kind of single dimensional kind of way. So Kemba, that's so interesting, and I really appreciate you um, extending the lens around thinking about how uh, a trauma-informed approach doesn't just have to live in a clinical setting. And and I think I've heard um, uh, you guys talking a little bit about what what it means to have traumatic experiences and how... Um, although the mental health community, if you will, or the mental health system of care is really making great strides in thinking about what it means to provide on trauma-informed care, there are other venues in which that expands. And so I really appreciate you bringing that up. I just wanted to highlight, I think I heard um, such a great conversation. I was, I, I heard several valuable things that I, that I wanted to just pull out um, and just sort of pause for a moment while we're talking a little bit more about what schools are doing and then, and then perhaps get back a little bit to that. But the one thing that I think is important to note about this conversation is that uh, I think we, we're seeing a valuable shift in defining redefining the way we think about trauma or crisis. And uh, Dr. Ballou, I think I heard you talking about this at the, at the beginning where uh, trauma is an individualized experience. It, how someone defines a crisis is very personal to, you know, to every person. Um, and it's important to note that. And I think that when, you know, we've talked about mental health in the past, there, it feels a little bit like there used to be this box and it, you know, that was really, um, only considered related to uh, significant or chronic psychiatric disorders, but that in today's world, we're recognizing that things like ACEs, the adverse um, childhood experiences or events, contribute to people's life experiences differently or the experience of, of toxic stress. Or I was thinking about this the other day when the WHO, the, uh, the World Health Organization came out, um, identifying work burnout basically as a health condition. Um, and so I think one of the things that is valuable for us to recognize, and this is what I'm hearing from you, is this is a bigger conversation, and it's important for us to recognize that this happens in a variety of ways outside of the things we would have normally considered as a traumatic event. 
clearly things that are traumatic like a school shooting um, or things like that that you would easily define as traumatic happen um, and people have experiences based upon those but there are other things that can contribute to that uh, trauma or toxic stress and I heard you also note things that are related to the social determinants of health, which we know public health professionals um, think about and talk about. I heard you talk about how the experiences of historical trauma um, or uh, the things that are how um, cultural and uh, elements or racism, the, the long-term experiences of racism can affect um, marginalized populations in that way. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to make sure that we covered, Dr. Um, Ballou, I heard you also say at the beginning talking about sort of measures or categories around that. And I think it would be valuable to talk about that a little bit more. Um, and then I would love to hear you guys say a little bit more about what schools are doing. Um, and also recognizing that while you're talking about some innovative experiences that some schools are having, that we still have a lot of schools and particularly in rural communities that don't have those same resources. And so thinking about what we're seeing that is working really well, but what might you say to school systems that um, perhaps don't have those same resources? What might uh, we, what might we advise um, public health partners or um, schools to be thinking about in terms of addressing those issues? From from my understanding of the current literature, I I don't even I'm not aware that the rural rural stressors or the context of of stress in rural areas and that stress that children may go through that's that's contextually related or specific to being in a rural area is is um, even for accounted system. for in the ACEs. I mean, certainly things like child abuse and, and domestic violence and exposure to violence can happen anywhere. And those things are pretty universal. But I am not so much aware of, of really a, a, any, I'm sure there's literature out there, but, but a critical mass of literature that, that really addresses some of the rural phenomena that a, a um, that a child may have to go through that may be different than than the, the typical ACEs that we that that those in an urban setting. I I have a a, a friend and colleague from Pennsylvania. Her name is Lisa Davis, and she is the um, director of the Office of Rural Health there. And she used to always come and speak in my class, and um, and she would just talk about kind of the, those nuances and differences in training that are required in, in, in healthcare. Even some of the most basic things. If you're an EMT in an urban area, you have standard EMT training. If you're an EMT in a rural area, you have to know how to take a tractor off of someone, right? Like you don't have to know how to take a tractor off. I mean, and I know that all rural areas are not characterized by having <laughs> tractors, but but you usually don't have tractors in urban areas. But you, that's something that you have to know how to do. You have to know how to deal with farm accidents or or occupational injuries that relate to um, more um, the rural the rural economy yeah. and, the, and the context that that uh, that individuals live in. So I, I I would definitely advocate for some more contextually specific issues that that a um, that a child or adolescent would face in a in a rural setting and even including rural poverty or um, failed failed farming or farming bills or, or, or other things that might happen in a rural setting that are not necessarily accounted for um, or you know a, a 
parent that's disabled from a farming accident. I mean, a number of things can happen or boredom or, you know, lack of access to other resources that can cause personal trauma or stress. And I, I think that, that uh, we definitely need to advocate just for some more research. Um, so I, I think that's, that's definitely a necessity. Um, that, just, that just makes me think of like my own clinical experience of going to, after getting trained at SNU and mm-hmm. be in like, I won't say the last clinical year site I was at, was out in the county. And then my first job was in Swansea, South Carolina. And then I had a student come in with injuries from squirrel hunting. And then somebody like was in the back of a pickup truck and had like transporting some like farm equipment and had a, like a serious injury. And then they came to see me because I was the easiest person for them to get to because I'm always at the school after hours with all kind of practice. So I was the healthcare provider that they came to see. That was not in the training that I received, right? So then mm-hmm. now I had to kind of essentially learn on the fly like all the different contexts and injuries that, you know, not necessarily athletic related but I still needed to treat because this was the population that I was in. So as you're saying that, I'm just like nodding and thinking, yeah, no, this is a very, that's a very real thing. That's not something we get taught very, you know, um, yeah. So do you, I appreciate the, um, com- the dialogue around that. And I, and I want to, um, I guess part of the thing that I think is important to note as you guys have been talking about trauma and toxic stress and the ACEs is that um, the increase, the the need for public health to participate in the awareness of what those things mean. And um, from my perspective, having worked both as a clinician and and in public health, um, broadening or perhaps expanding um, people's sense of awareness of what those things mean, that it isn't just, you know, I've lived in a war-torn nation or um, I was, you know, that you survived a school shooting or some of those genuinely horrible events and that if you didn't have those, then you must be fine. Um, Just recognizing that there are many other things that uh, somebody could experience as traumatic or as a crisis that can contribute. Um, and that there might be other things that are cultural with which I, you were just talking about, uh, perhaps from rural communities uh, that could be interpreted that way or could negatively impact the children to a degree uh, that is causing them trauma. So I appreciate the recognition of that. Um, what I might ask is if you um, could say perhaps even a little bit about the prevalence. Um, what does data show in terms of the prevalence of um, of ACEs or um, trauma or toxic stress in uh, the in the children's system? Sure, I I will actually um, give you some information from a national data set um, that I've been working with since two thousand and three. So there is a data set um, called the National Survey of Children's Health. It's um, a CDC National Center for Health Statistics um, product. And uh, it started out in 2003, I believe there were about 102,000 children represented. And and given given the economic times now in 2017, there's about 50,000 kids in the data set. Um, And in 2011, they started measuring ACEs. and the the most recent estimates, and again, this is a these are just prevalences. Although that they, they started um, collecting the data every four years in two thousand three, seven, eleven slash twelve, and then sixteen, and now it's become an annual data set starting in two thousand seventeen. Um, 
so it's, it's multiple cross sections. It's, it's not the same child followed over time, but um, that they would say that, that um, 64% of it, actually adults, this is from a, another measure, have reported ACEs and more than one in five people over, uh, over a lifetime um, have reported three or more ACEs and about 12% of people four or more um, ACEs. So it's, it's pretty prevalent. Um, some of the work that I've been doing um, really has to do with not just adding up ACEs, right? I mean, things are, are qualitatively and contextually and quantitatively different. You know, perhaps having a parent, having lost a parent or experiencing sexual abuse are not, don't qualitatively have the same effect. So as opposed to just adding up, I've had four ACEs or I've had five ACEs, um, to really identify what the cumulative effect is based on on the particular ACE. But you do have a good majority of the population that's had at least one. And I, and I will say back to some other points that you mentioned before, uh, is, is that um, every, um, that trauma is individualized. We've talked about that a few minutes ago, but that also just because somebody doesn't appear to be traumatized doesn't mean they're not traumatized. You could have the high performing or or a quiet student that seems to be well adjusted that is traumatized and actually does need some um, some therapy or some care or some intervention. Um, so I, I will just put it out there and I'll have, you know, ask Dr. Barnes for her opinion because she's the, the clinician that um, trauma-informed education and trauma-informed school-based programs and trauma-informed coaching are not just for those that have stereotypical signs of of having experienced an ACE or a trauma, they could be for everyone, even for the child that's not ex even doesn't even can't recognize that they that what their experience is, is trauma and can't articulate it and don't necessarily have those signs that get them sent to end school sus suspension or that put them on the the administration's radar. So all students, you know, just given stress that kids go, go through from even from cyberbullying to whatever they're going through, I think a trauma-informed approach um, where people come from an understanding that, that um, their, their behavior is their current coping mechanism and, and, and they need to be taught to just go healthier off, ways so to go off to the statistics that dr Ballou mentioned so from the nsch the national survey of children's health um when you look at that just under 45 percent of those children have experienced at least one ace mm -hmm. um so that's just a national national data set so and then 56 percent of those children have experienced um one or more ACE when you when you go about so and that's kind of pretty consistent from 2011 to 2016 like that hasn't really fluctuated so it's a it's a fairly consistent experience mm -hmm. when we're looking at the just a national sample of the children of the United States um, and then that being said like it's not an equally shared experience where we see that when we look at the different racial and ethnic groups um, non-hispanic and black children there's 61 percent of them are more likely to experience one or more ACE when you look at um, non-hispanic white children so it's just important to kind of know, note that within we look at national uh, data sets uh, that the experience of ACEs is consistent across the board but um, it's just it's 
we again we go down to racial ethnic differences it just seems that the uh, black and non-hispanic non-hispanic black and brown kids are just experiencing aces at an increased level that you know it's a little bit concerning and i i um would say in my uh, review of the literature, I, I agree with that some ACEs are more qualitative, qualitatively significant. And one study I've read was that maternal mental health or pater, uh, paternal mental health is significant. And if you think about systems of care and um, a caregiver being affecting the entire family, one of the things that we're facing is as parents are facing mental health issues, as they're facing substance abuse issues or opiate abuse, um, these are things that trickle down generationally. And so schools are one of the places that I see that this interface first happens between the family and a system of care where there can be an intervention. So that's one of the, I think even if it's to kind of go back to your old other question of what do we do in schools that may not have as many resources is even if there's an awareness in the teacher population or whoever um, the staff is of trauma-informed care that can make an enormous change and even one thing that um, in this work I've seen is asking about children not what's wrong with them but what has happened to them you know if that model is translated to any school system. I think it changes the dynamic and it changes the um, ability to kind of open that dialogue for children, um, whether in a rural or an urban setting. Uh, but that kind of caring for families and figuring out ACEs, which ones are more, uh, more qualitatively significant. I think anecdotally as well in my practice, I find that a lot of times when maternal mental health is maternal depression, postpartum depression, um, postpartum psychosis, when these issues arise, uh, it makes treating mental health just significantly more, more challenging. And then if you're adding more children in that family, so it has a different effect overall because um, now you're talking about three children maybe instead of just one. the one child sitting in front of you, mm -hmm. because this isn't just that child sitting in front of you, it's the family and then the community also affected by that family. There's, there's some work, um, one of the authors, um, uh, Dariotis, and um, it's a team that was uh, brought together by um, Mark Greenberg, who's a, who's a kind of a specialist in, in um, school-based prevention. And, and they've had success in using mindfulness and, and yoga um, to, to help kids reduce stress and toxic stress um, and to improve um, behavioral and academic outcomes. But of course, again, that's contextual as well. If you're in an urban school or a rural, a rural school, I don't think it's necessarily the, the act of um, just doing mindfulness meditation. It's, it's whatever is, is de-stressing um, from a contextual point of view, whether they have music class or however, however they want to, um, allow students to to reduce their stress or to break angry rumination or or just to calm down um, some of those programs can be done for free even as simple as we're going to have a music hour or um, I mean I think as we all know and, and Kemba can speak to this that that compared to decades ago when I was in a school child um, we had the presidential fitness test and all of those things. And so we exercised a lot. I mean, I, I, 
we were always, I was always outside when I was a child. And that is, you know, there's biological and research evidence that, that, that exercise and movement reduces your stress. And I think that in, in a school-based setting, um, because of testing and other things, um, we've almost, you know, we're doing the kids a disservice because we're reducing the um, not even outside. Yeah, <laughs> where or PE, you don't have to move. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have PE classes where, where it doesn't involve any, any movement. Mm -hmm. So um, because of risk or, or uh, inappropriate staffing, but even things like making sure that children are getting some kind of exercise or music education, the things that we're cutting out of schools are actually the things that could help counteract trauma and give some kids some, some better coping skills. So in terms of you know policy and and, and advocacy and 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 um, to kind of advocate for those things that they're actually taking out of the schools, right. I think would 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 be helpful. And again, the school system and the families or the parents are the ones that have to decide what is what contextually is that for for the school system. Right. And then when you think about um, like again to go against go again go. Against, with these things that are being taken out of schools. If a school district doesn't have the money to provide like extracurricular activities after school, right? And then they don't have physical activity during the day, then that child's not getting to move at all because now they don't have any kind of interscholastic sports and stuff after school to like supplement for that lack of movement with physical education. And there's a lot of barriers that a lot of athletic directors and um, there's one study that discuss like different barriers that athletic directors face in terms of one having athletic athletic trainers in terms of one to make sport safe for the kids to participate in but one of the main things that they came up with is that uh, that was mentioned is that they don't have any kind of power like budgetary power at all they get told this is how much money you have for your sport programs and athletic directors have to figure out how to make that work and a lot of the times is that your coaches don't get paid enough so then you, you don't get good coaches and then you don't have a sport program or you know what I mean there are a lot of things that are going into policy wise why schools don't have access to sport and like that's what Lou mentioned sport is a one of the that one avenue that you can utilize to de-stress or kids utilize to de-stress it also helps them build a sense of community outside of school, right? Because I know with the school that I work in, those when it comes to football season, from the summer all the way up to November, we see them probably more than their parents do. Like we see them during the day, during the summer, after school. So we it, it becomes very much of this family thing and it's, it's another way for them to now be away from gun violence or, or be away from that home where they're experiencing all these different kinds of trauma and that kind of thing too. So when on a policy level there isn't any uh, any kind of um, advocacy to uh, support schools and to support school systems to have um, even the simple things as sport and proper physical education um, as a simple way to uh, do trauma-informed care and to de-stress students, um, we're really doing them a disservice that way as well. Kemba, thank you for that. I, you sort of tied back around to some an important note that I heard the three of you discussing at the beginning of this podcast was the relationship between um, social, emotional, and mental well-being and physical health. Um, and and I, I think I would like to stress that for our public health professionals that may be listening is that um, when you're thinking about, well, how can I help? I don't know anything about mental health, uh, that we recognize the relationship there. And I believe Dr. Ballou, you we are, or we're talking even a little bit about the likelihood of um, people who might experience trauma or toxic stress or have experienced um, one or more ACEs are more likely to have 
X, Y, and Z risks um, or negative health experiences, so physical health experiences. So I think that's important to note. Um, <clears throat> in the mental health community, we might we might refer to those things as sort of co-occurring, right? That there's more than one thing happening at a time and that they relate. We also know that literature shows that um, that adults who have experienced um, mental health challenges over their lifetime are significantly more likely to have to also have um, physical health complications, be those chronic or acute, um, and less likely likely perhaps to even um, seek care for those. So I really appreciate the conversation today about how those things pair. Um, and I also heard you talk in this last little segment about several things that I sort of was seeing in my head about, you know, the 10 essential public health services wheel. Um, and so I'd like to help us move, move this conversation to thinking about, well, how can public health be a part of the solution? What are things that, um, that public health professionals, public health departments can do to be involved? What would you, what, what are some of the things that you say? I heard you talk a little bit already around advocacy and policy, uh, perhaps even having a role in helping to collect local data around these issues. But what would you say to our public health listeners about how they could be involved um, and what takeaways you might have for them? Something I do for my students who are MPH students and uh, health, public health professionals and training is that I uh, provide them with training on uh, trauma-informed care and trauma-informed interviewing so that when they go out into the community, whether it's a school system or other community-based organizations, that when they are um, talking to clients or community members, that they are speaking from a trauma-informed perspective. And they, they, I think we did two four-hour trainings um, that were, were very useful. So I think that it should really be part of um, public health education in in general, so that that uh, students and and professionals that that uh, work in frontline public health that I did, I I, I spent um, some time in in actually Nashville's um, city county uh, metro public health department, and um, for those frontline public health workers that interact with clients um, to really understand how to interact from a trauma informed perspective. Uh, I think is is helpful, and it's just it should just really be part of of um, uh, public health education in in general. And I think that that can be one way to um, educate the public health workforce in um, trauma informed interviewing and trauma informed interactions, and and just the basics of trauma informed care. Whether you work at the reception desk of a, a of a uh, public health organization or you are in health behavior or uh, you know in, infection can uh, control you you should have an understanding of of trauma-informed approaches and I would say so I actually wear two hats so I'm a child psychiatrist but I also have my master's in public health and I think one of the reasons I sought that out was because there's that need for a bridge um, any child psychiatrist will tell you there's a shortage nationwide. There's no county in the United States that has enough child psychiatrists. Their pro projected need is 30,000 and we have 8,000 total nationwide. Um, so I think that partnership and that bridge working with public health professionals is essential because we have to take a wider scope and a wider lens and partnering with schools and saying, okay, what other interventions mm -hmm. can we um, implement uh, kind of 
trying to head off some of these more severe illnesses. If there's a trauma, I mean, resilience is built by having somebody intervene in the course of the trauma occurring. So what, in the definition of toxic stress, it's just the stress that's continuous and bombarding without any re, um, relief of that stress. Nobody to give you a hug when you fall down. Right. Nobody to talk to when you lose a friend. And so having public health professionals um, trained in trauma-informed care, having teachers trained in trauma-informed care, connecting with clinics for more severe cases, I think that's the model that we're, we're kind of leaning towards for the future given the absence of 20,000 other child psychiatrists. <laughs> um, and I, so a part of my role is training residents and it doesn't look like those 20,000 are coming very soon. <laughs> so I think that it's essential to, you know, to engage with um, public health professionals, school-based programs to really kind of, to, to take a broader scope of what the needs are. Sorry, I was gonna, uh, to agree with Dr. Barnes, like, like I said, I'm an athletic trainer and in the allied health world. So we're, like now we're just really broadening that lens even wider, right? So um, I think she's right in terms of we need to engage with public health professionals, but also clinicians as well need to really and truly be trauma-informed as well. And not just the typical, or who I'm making air quotes right now, the typical clinicians, but just also clinicians like myself and athletic trainers and physical therapists and occupational therapists as well, because even think they're occupational therapists who work in jails, right? And prepare people to come back out into, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? acclimatized to society and those kind of things as well, they also need to be trained in trauma-informed care, especially now if we're thinking about the school-to-prison pipeline. If you have people working in schools, um, like those kind of things, then they also need to be uh, trauma-informed as well. So I think broadening the scope and your community resources is really important so that when you as a public health professional are trained, your advocacy shouldn't just only be towards policy changes, but also engaging with the people around you who make up your clinician kind of pool mm -hmm. so that you now spread spread the word to them as like, okay, yeah, we work in this community. These are the things that we currently see. I think it's really good for you to become trauma-informed so that when you go in to do work into that community, they're actually facilitating the movement and not also in unintentionally hindering the progress that could happen. And I'll, I'll come speak from, from the two hats or maybe it's one hat, turn it to the front, turn it to the back. <laughs> so I'll speak from two hats. Um, first from a, from having worked in, in um, local public health um, to make sure that we're you know beyond some of these national data sets that we we include understanding of, of trauma and ACEs in in our surveillance and our, our needs assessments even um, you know as we as health departments are starting to collaborate more with hospitals um, in in terms of um, community health needs assessments and to really kind of look at factors related to trauma and, and ACEs in, and needs assessments and in surveillance um, from a local level, not just from you know, this, this national level. Um, and leading into that, into this partnership with hospitals, I'm gonna put on you know, the, the health management and health services um, scholar hat, and that you know, hospitals, you know, albeit for-profit, um, when you go into a children's hospital, it looks like Disneyland. And that is to reduce trauma and to improve patient experiences so that children who are ill can can heal 
and have a good experience and have a, a better emotional experience, which is going to help their physical healing. Whereas our schools don't look like that. I mean, you, you know, there's a, there, from a, from a management and from an org theory perspective, there is a, you know, having a healthy organization um, and, and have all the way from appearance to function also affects someone's ability to build resilience and to, to administer trauma-informed care. So if you look at a lot of our schools, you know, a lot of our rural schools and, and our urban schools, they don't look like Disneyland, right? So, so um, or Disney World, or whichever <laughs> coast you're on. Um, but really having, you know, that trauma-informed design, right? It doesn't feel very good to go to school and it looks uh, like, like or, <laughs> you know, hospitals look better than schools or it looks, it looks like a, a prison um, or it doesn't look nice. And also you have underpaid teachers and, and the whole environment's stressful. And from an organizational development and, or, or capacity perspective, um, you have schools and staff in them that are, you know, have workplace stress and trauma, like you mentioned from the World Health Organization. If you have a stressed out organization and stressed out teachers and burnt out teachers, it's going to be hard for them. They're going to need their own trauma-informed care. And it's going to be hard for them to, to deliver that type of education to the children. So it really kind of starts from well, that organizational development, organizational management and, and policy perspective that you build schools as healthy organizations if you're going to deliver um, uh, you know, a, a trauma-informed uh, positive caring environment. You know, I mean, there's, you know, positive affect or inducing positive affect may, might seem trivial, but, you know, it is the difference between going into a school that's, that's crumbling with, with gray walls and going to a school that has nice and fluorescent lights, exactly, that, and versus going into a school that has nice facilities and, and flowers um, does have effects on your mental health. So, uh, and, you know, having stressed out teachers and high teacher turnover and and inadequate resources is exacerbates the trauma and, and and makes it hard to fix it. So I think that you know, from a public health perspective, really recognize that that trauma and include that in community health needs assessments when you're partnering with healthcare organizations. But from just an organizational capacity and organizational development, looking at students, as, looking at schools as a as a system of of care and education, to really think about how do you build. A, a healthy school system all the way from um, the, the climate, the organizational climate and the morale to the appearance of that school and think about what it does to the children. And then, you know, we, you have high teacher turnover, stressed out teachers and um, a school that's, that's visually unappealing. And then you, and then you wonder why, You're at, why, why are the kids acting out and, right. and, and not performing well? And it's really not a question we should ask. I mean, because once I will say the students know, the kids know when an administration or a district or, or the people in charge of the teachers care. They know. They're mm -hmm. able to decipher very, very quickly if this person genuinely cares about them or if this district cares about them or if they don't. And, and a lot of the times, or like with, with the students that I've worked with, they, they will their effort is very much mirrored by the effort that they're given, right? So if they perceive very much that people don't care if they do well or not, and they're just going to push them through, then they don't care themselves. So they have absolutely no motivation to do anything at all. So if we, if we really approach it the way Dr. Boo is suggesting, I think you can see the needle kind of move a lot more because you're treating 
the school system not as this place to park your kids during the day, uh, like as a as a warden, right? But you're actually like treating it as this system that could um, holistically help the students and help the children, right? Mitigate any kind of trauma that they're dealing with when they leave the walls of the school. And I would add, I think what I'm hearing and also the other piece of after you have your needs assessment, you know how to add the ACEs to the treatment, right. to the needs assessment, mm -hmm. You there's the advocacy piece, right? right? So, because some places are under-resourced, but that doesn't mean it has to continue to be under-resourced. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's one of the the powers of professional organizations, because not only do you do the needs assessment, you can go back and feed into these are the policies that we need to, to work for based off of our needs assessment. This isn't a, a problem that's been identified. Um, and I think that I think in my work, I've seen this a lot too, because I also do advocacy is lawmakers aren't always public health professionals. They're not always <laughs> physicians. So actually most frequently they are not. So that information and, and get, um, trickling that down to the lawmakers mm -hmm. to actually advocate for change yeah. that is evidence-based, based off of data from our communities, is an essential part of that, um, changing those environments too. Even from a, from a local perspective, I'm not sure that in terms of um, public health professionals and public health practice that, that um, some of the um, work that public health professionals do even gets to the school board, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, you know, as, as public health professionals, how, how do we, you know, create products and disseminate products that, that do go to kind of those powers that, that, that be? Yeah, I, you know what I really am appreciating about this conversation is, um, although we're talking quite a bit about schools today specifically and ACEs in schools, um, that you're threading together, you know, the, the value of public health is being a, able to have a really holistic view of community um, and how we can fit into that. And, and I think it feels a little bit like in today's national environment, it's a great space for public health to say, you know, hey, we can help. Um, step into this advocacy role and help support policy conversations and and I particularly think at least maybe I'm um, mentioning this from my state's experience but what other data can we collect to help round out this conversation that we're that we're not doing now um, or we sort of defer to our partners to collect you know our, our behavioral health partners might collect a B or Z um, and recognizing that some of those data sets might be small or skewed because uh, things around ACEs are often collected around high-risk populations um, and so I, I appreciate hearing a lot of um, recommendations for our public health professionals. Um, and one thing I might sort of chime in before we before we move to some closing questions for us is just recognizing that um, particularly perhaps for local public health departments is uh, that trauma-informed care can fit into a variety of places. And this is what I've heard um, our speakers mention several times today, uh, that it isn't, you know, this one program that you may or may not have money to initiate, but that you can infuse the conversations around being trauma-informed in nearly everything you do. Um, perhaps you work at a clinic that provides uh, WIC 
for um, families that you can infuse trauma-informed approach there. Perhaps uh, public health professionals are working with businesses and worksite wellness that you can infuse trauma-informed care and thinking in those variety of settings. So I really uh, appreciate hearing such a, a great um, wealth of wisdom coming from you today. I want to just note, um, there's perhaps not a, a, there's no way I can summarize um, everything that you shared today, but just sort of a couple key highlights that I heard today. And I might ask um, our speakers also to just to do a, maybe a bit of a recap of the episode. Um, and then I've got a couple last questions for you. But here's some really powerful statements that I heard from you guys today. Um, one, uh, trauma-informed care really is for everyone. A trauma-informed approach is appropriate everywhere, um, and public health can help. It can has a role in helping us think about that and how we expand that and infuse that into things we may already be doing. Um, Kemba, I really appreciated your participation today because it helps us think about an arena that public health is really big in when we're uh, from an obesity prevention perspective or an advocacy around physical health. Well, that's a space we're already in. And so how do we, how do we marry those things together? And you did a really wonderful job highlighting some of those things today. I heard us talk about um, one in five people report over a lifetime having experienced at least one or more ACE and recognizing that um, uh, that those statistics are particularly um, much higher when in regards to um, ethnicity or race. So recognizing that there are some populations that are at higher risk for that. Um, I heard um, some particular notes around um, we can do better to help increase awareness in general, but when in the uh, regards to conversations around school settings, around teacher populations, coaching populations, um, and I think even you might say um, parent groups, right? So helping parents learn how to help other parents is a particularly valuable resource in, um, in school communities that might have a lack of uh, nurses available or other um, professional care services available. Um, I heard us talk about public health's role in helping to do advocacy and um, policy. And one thing that I think is a really powerful note that I heard from you guys today is just the recognition that toxic stress, uh, trauma, uh, crises, those things are very personalized. Um, and so what might be traumatic, a traumatic experience to one might be different to another. And therefore, it's important for us to not box that in based upon how we might define that and recognizes that that can show up differently um, in both children and adults. Um, so I'm wondering if, from the three of our um, experts today in our podcast, what might you add as a wrap up or just a, sort of a final few statements that can help recap um, the episode today? Anybody can be an advocate or be an assistance to treating ACEs. I mean, it starts with just asking the question, are there ACEs there? Are, is there toxic stress? And even if you miss that piece, if you're able to sit with somebody or child and as they experience um, their, their toxic stress and be present with them, that has a, a huge effect because at least you are addressing it even if you may not know what the toxic stress is. And sometimes with trauma, it doesn't come out or it's inappropriate to ask what the specific trauma is. Mm -hmm. So just to be trauma informed and be able to sit with some a child as they're going through adverse child experiences or um, a be resource for them is frontline everyday um, helpful for in schools at homes. 
um, and then, you know, in, in clinic settings. And um, I, I would say that a trauma-informed approach needs to be infused just in, in the public health workforce, starting from from the education of, of public health practitioners. Uh, I know that you know, our, the MPH was is kind of the the main you know public health professional degree, but you know health educators. Um, even you know, there's a lot of bachelors in public health programs now. But but infusing that from an early stage and making sure that our public health workforce comes out with an understanding of trauma informed care, whether they end up working with children in schools or or in other athletic venues or in in, in after school programs or, or any settings, that that we need to start infusing that training early on in in our programs. And that also, I, I would just say from, this is not evidence-based, this is just my personal belief that, you know, when, I, I believe that, that psychiatrists and psychologists have to do this, but I also think that, that public health practitioners should do this to get you to, before you start practicing and helping other folks to really go recognize your own trauma and to yes. make sure that, that, that um, you've, you're taking care of yourself first. You, you, you can only take care of your community as well as you can take care of yourself. And I think that there are a lot of adults and folks walking around who are public health practitioners who, who we've all experienced trauma. I mean, uh, to, to some extent, we may not measure on the ACEs scale, but everybody's had their own life events. And so really as a public health practitioner to have that kind of reflective time, um, whether that's encouraged in the classroom, I know that social work programs and other more site-based programs do this, but as, a, as public health practitioners, given um, what, what our kids and communities are going through these days, um, you know, with the help of the internet and online bullying and what's and news and, and, and just access to information that could also be stressful, um, that to really recognize your own, your own trauma and your own stress and find healthy coping, healthy ways to cope with that as a public health professional, especially a lot of public health professionals work in places with the shoestring budget and a skeleton crew. So, you know, how do you cope yourself so that you can you can be the best for for those that you serve but really it, it just definitely needs to be part of, of the public health workforce training yeah i don't think you can add anything to <laughs> to um i agree wholeheartedly with both dr bulu and dr barnes um especially with the the process of really and truly understanding your own trauma um, because that becomes really important because the last thing that you want to do as a public health worker or even as a clinician is to go into the space and now unintentionally traumatize or re-traumatize or re-victimize that child within your school. Um, because we, we want to help and we want to help in the best way that we know how. And even if you not trauma-informed, just that, that awareness and that, um, that cognition that you know what like i have to go into the space very open to just create that environment that they want to talk to you um because like like dr bond said just sitting with them and being present is helping right because a lot of the kids do gravitate to somebody who just genuinely do care about them right so as a public health worker or even as a clinician that's something to just really be cognizant of especially if you're working in a school that you know does not have the best budget in the world right um you want to help and you are not necessarily trauma informed hopefully after hearing this you recognize like you can make a difference regardless if you get an official trauma informed training or not so so perhaps here's kind of a final question um 
if time and <laughs> I'm reflecting on your statement around public health typically works, you know, on the shoestring budget with a skeleton crew, but if time and resources were no issue, what would you ideally like to see happen in this area? I, I would like to see definitely workforce training um, and better, better public health infrastructure and I, I, you might be able to speak to uh, to some of this Dr. Barnes where um, even trauma-informed design in, in public health facilities. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Dr. Barnes has included me in a project on, um, on kind of a trauma and relaxation rooms for, for adolescents but really putting some money into trauma-informed training, trauma-informed care and you know, especially for, for our health educators and for those that have that face-to-face -face contact with the, with the community in frontline public health, but also in trauma-informed design. Um, and how do you design a facility that, that um, helps reduce trauma and also in, in your own workforce, I think that we have <laughs> trauma in our public <laughs> health workforce and, and in, in the communities um, that, that we served. I mean, a child should not have to have a, a, a pleasant visual and, and institutional experience. They shouldn't have to wait to have that until they get extreme, extremely ill and are required to go to a children's hospital, right? That shouldn't be the time where you get to go and have a nice facility to go receive care when you, when you have a, a diagnosis that requires you to go to a children's specialty hospital. Like we should be able to provide that, um, you know, in our day-to-day our, our organizations. So I would, I would really like to see some more trauma-informed design and, and I think if you do the trauma-informed design and that training, it kind of becomes like a train-to-trainer situation. Yes. So right, so public health officials are now trained in how to create a trauma-informed design and you can take that to school boards, right, mm -hmm. to now help them revamp their schools in mm -hmm. terms of just not only the discipline, but also in terms of the organizational layout, something as simple as to your classroom structures. So when you have professional development before school starts with your teachers, then it's not just coming and decorating your classroom. You're actually working with the teachers to come now create an environment and a space that encourages learning, but also like has desensitization and all those kind of things built into that as well too. Because not to mention the fact we're talking about school-based settings, you also have layered on top of it children that do have learning challenges or different mm -hmm. learning styles and um, you know all the other you know uh, numerous things that the the teachers and the staff have to deal with if, so I would add that it's children belong in school and I think sometimes we get away from that model because children aren't getting suspended or expelled right. because of behavioral issues right. um, and so if we had all of the resources, uh, I would say, you know, to have to do the uh, to have development of teachers, development of public health professionals as front line to kind of then have appropriate referrals and engaging mental health professionals for further levels of care because psychiatric illness is, you know, deserves treatment. But a lot of times, uh, what comes to the clinic isn't necessarily severe psychiatric illness, it's the teachers that are unable to um, address the issues that are at hand mm -hmm. or social workers that are unable to have the resources they need to provide therapy services, mm -hmm. even though they may or um, may not have been trained in those areas. And I think maybe if we utilize the school-based health center model in terms of having that kind of direct access to um, behavioral health as well as primary health as well too, within the school system, I think that could also Help and as well to also engage 
um, and I can let Kimba close this out um, <laughs> because her her dissertation work is is allied health, including you know PT OT athletic training and how um, to engage um, some of those other frontline practitioners um, with the public health workforce, right? Because we're all, we're all working on the same issues. So how I would also say there should be some more training and efforts if we have resources to break down some of the silos mm -hmm. of um, all of these different individuals that are working with with children and mm -hmm. see the same children but see them in a disconnected and siloed way, mm -hmm. right? Whereas the the child psychiatrist and the athletic trainer and the public health professional. Um, may all be interacting with the child and have no idea that the other person's interacting with the child. So yeah. really how do we, as uh, public health practitioners, really kind of expand our scope and understand how um, we can work together with other allied health and other healthcare professionals to, to really put together kind of a comprehensive model so that we're not you know, give it, providing fragmented um, you know, public health uh, products and that we're not reinventing the wheel or duplicating resources or missing out on resources that, mm -hmm. that could go to children and families. Okay. So yeah, if, if there's trauma-informed care training, if there's psychology, psychological first aid training, mm -hmm. how do you identify depression? How do you identify anxiety? Mm -hmm. How do you refer um, how do you refer, wow. who are you referring to your community resources? Right. When is right. it to that level where, oh, right. I need to see a child and adolescent right. psychiatrist? When is it to the mm -hmm. level I need to see a, the therapist once a week? Right. Um, and so frontline training in that regard is, is essential. And I, I, what I encounter is a lot of pe um, people in the school systems that are welcoming that information because they're, it's not readily available. Mm -hmm. And so and moving to a systemic model that is both um, trauma-informed care, move, breaking down those mm -hmm. silos is mm -hmm. going to be essential to that. And in terms of public health infrastructure, you had mentioned earlier about WIC clinics, right? So, so you know, how do we make sure that that uh, our staff at, at, at WIC clinics that are often in, in public health facilities or under the purview of a, a county or a local health department, um, how do those staff um, recognize um, postpartum depression or, or um, depression or anxiety in, in uh, children or, or in the, the moms or trauma and, and the mothers, even the lactation specialists, right? How, how, do, we, how do we create trauma-informed WIC frontline staff and lactation specialists and all of those other um, you know, public health uh, workforce staff? How do we, how do we create a, a trauma-informed workforce, all you know, in, in those areas as well, or really all areas, I think it would be important. Even even for those that are doing um, restaurant inspection, right? I mean, everybody, <laughs> you know, food inspectors should should have some understanding of trauma-informed interviewing and, and trauma-informed care. If you reach a human, this is an appropriate training for you, right? <laughs> like, if you interact with humans at all, the trauma info, right? And so, there just to be thinking about um, how we can expand uh, the awareness among those communities. What I was starting to say is, I've long been an advocate for public health to help expand training around trauma informed 
um, care to, you know, cosmetologists, nail technicians, and barbers, which are everyone's therapists, you know, uh, the, the things that definitely exist in communities where there might are, there's clearly an absence of um, clinical psychologists, as was mentioned earlier. So y'all, this has been fantastic. I'm, I am, I am all with the, um, the big vision of just give us all the money and, and we're going to help <laughs> communities. I'm, I am with that. Um, so I heard, um, the three, we, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much. I heard the three of you talking about some really practical things that, uh, public health professionals and, and agencies and local public health can do. Uh, we certainly have talked about our big vision, I'm going to add to that also one of the things that I would really love to see is the expansion of the use of community health workers and family peer support partners. I feel like that's a population of professionals that can perhaps grow a lot quicker than the 30,000 child psychiatrists that are needed throughout the nation. Um, so let's wrap this up a little bit. Um, so if we know that our public health partners um, and professionals are listening today and um, sort of bringing back to our conversation or the point of our podcast today was around ACEs and ACEs in schools and thinking particularly about children. What might be the couple things that you would say to folks that are um, listening here? You know, when you hang up on the podcast today, what might be a couple concrete next steps or some recommendations for action that you would say to your colleagues? It can start as easy as you're going to pick your child up from school today and asking whether the teacher feels that they uh, are properly trained to deal with trauma in the school system. Or secondly, if you learn something, writing a letter and sharing that with um, the school administrator or the um, a local lawmaker and kind of what are we doing as a community to implement this or address it. And, and I think again kind of going back to my other point if if you see a child or know a child that maybe is going through a hard time to sit with them and just be there and and see what the conversation unfolds to um i'll piggyback on that a little bit um and that i know that there's a lot of political discourse on a national level but as a public health professional know who your your local lawmakers are and know who your school board is and i yeah. think that that's a first step working locally in your own community and understanding the dynamics of of where the money flows um in your own community and um having an understanding of who's on the school board what the election cycle is what the appointment cycle is who who your district local offices. yes your district <laughs> offices who your your local um lawmakers are de depending on i mean we're we're in st louis so we have you know uh, a municipality for you know almost everybody to live in <laughs> i mean we have a lot of municipalities and a lot of us so we have a, a lot of local government here but understand your local government understand the tax structure and really as a public health professional understand the the dynamics of your city jurisdiction county and state so you understand how to advocate and really um what the what the issues are and, and, and where the power lies and how the money flows. And I think that that's an important exercise as um, a public health um, professional or public health student um, to really start with your own local community and to understand that. Um, and I think, um, again, with the schools, we're thinking about schools, I think you as a parent, or even if you work in, say, a particular school district, 
try to have an understanding of what the discipline policies are, right, to see if they're moving towards a trauma-informed approach, because I know, like, within St. Louis, there's some schools that have gone towards, like, restor restorative justice um, for discipline and those kind of things. Um, I think if you're really trying to make a dent within, um, like, trauma-informed within school systems and ACEs within schools, um, I think understanding what that discipline policy is and how, how exactly is that enforced? What does that actually look like? Um, because you can't really make any kind of substantial change if you don't understand what's actually going on within the schools themselves, right? So I think um, understanding what that policy is, talk, like talking with the school principal and finding out what your resources are for trauma-informed training, right? Because within St. Louis, we have Alive and Well, they do um, trauma-informed training. You can be an ambassador to help reshape communities and they have a lot of resources as well. So I think figuring out what resources you have within the realm of trauma-informed care um, where you are um, to start with will kind of give you that uh, motivation and the the knowledge and the language to really approach a different school to offer assistance, right? And not just tell them what they're doing wrong, but also offer assistance to now make a change within within that one school and you never know, it might piggyback off to something else. And the one thing we haven't summarized too is to take care of yourself. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Self care is an important thing. For, very, very yeah, important. Self care for the public health <laughs> and health professions workforce. Sign up coffee, whatever you need. Yes. To be is, is, is <laughs> critical. I, I always give my students the self care lecture. I have a good friend who lives in Nashville who always says to to her other friends take exquisitely good care of yourself her mm -hmm. name is Ola Omi so I will credit her with the quote mm -hmm. take exquisitely good care of yourself um, so that you can you can take care there of others is. and and as a public health professional if you, you may not have school-age kids so you may not think about the schools but but the status of the schools is the status of your community and the status of the future and those are the folks that are going to be taking care of you when you're when you're old <laughs> so <laughs> so even if you don't have a school-aged child go to a school board meeting it's it's your neighborhood it's your community and it's the foundation of your community and it's the next generation of of of, of the workforce and and even if you don't have a school-aged child um really go and, and 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 understand what's going on in the school system and, and see how you can be involved and what are the public health implications because it, it, your neighborhood schools your your community is 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 no better than your your neighborhood schools so really just go and understand what's going on in your school system but that's a really powerful sentiment. I mean, just recognizing that, you know, the nurse who will be taking care of me when I'm 90 is in the elementary school a couple blocks away right now. Yeah, that's really, that's good. Ladies, this has been fantastic. I am so grateful um, that you're willing to share your wisdom with us today. Um, this is just, not only, of course, is this timely nationally, but it's just so wonderful to have experts um, that understand public health, can help other public health professionals think about um, our role in this, um, in helping to support social, emotional, and mental well-being. I like to I, I like to use that phrase because it helps us think about what we want to have happen instead of, you know, how do we help address the problem of mental health? Well, that's not ours. There's a system for that, right? Our job is to help contribute to um, whole well-being. There's the phrase that we hear in behavioral health a lot is that there is no health without behavioral health. And um, since we're in the lane of, of caring about the health of the public, this is an important spot for us to think about. So um, Dr. Ballou, Dr. Barnes, and the soon-to-be Dr. Noel London, I'm so grateful for your time today. 
But thank you so much for sharing your expertise, for helping us um, not only learn a little bit more about ACEs in schools, but to help connect that to what we do every day as public health professionals and also just as members that care about our community. So I really appreciate your time today. I'm, uh, we're grateful um, on behalf of the Midwestern Public Health Training Center for um, your contribution to this podcast series on mental health. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to our guests and to members of our planning committee, Sonia Armbruster, Katie Brandert, Stacey Coleman, Brandon Grimm, Joy Harris, Suzanne Holly, Abby Minky, Janine Moody, Melissa Richland, Hannah Schultz, Lori Walkner, and Kristen Wilson for guidance in creating this series, and Tamaya Chilisi for guidance as well as hosting this series. Theme music was composed and produced by Dave Hoeing and Roger Heilman. Funding for this webinar is provided by the Health Resources and Services Administration. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation and transcript.